Ooh. Now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to the second episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Thank you for joining us again. Hopefully you enjoyed the first episode. I'm Nick. I'm here with Dylan. How are you, man? Hanging in there, dude. All right. And uh, we're here to talk about the second episode of Twin Peaks The Return, The Stars Turn and a Time Presents Itself. This is quite an episode. It's really, really jam-packed. Uh, yeah, I've had trouble separating it from part one in my head just because I, when I first watched it, it was the two back-to-back. And then when I right. first rewatched it, I rewatched the two back-to-back and then watched it separately. But yeah, as its own episode from start to finish, it's like it's one of the more uh, eventful, I'd say, of the whole return. Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned, uh, Showtime aired the first two episodes like as one solid block episode and it's interesting this hour i think is very eventful compared to the first hour which is a little bit more a uh, little bit more languid a little more chill it has a lot of bouncing back and forth too between like between the red room scenes and then back into new york and all that stuff where i, I just felt like there was so much more happening uh i was a little bit I don't know if more arrested is the word, but I was definitely more like on the edge of my seat with this one. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a great episode. And in fact, I would say this is probably one of the better episodes this season, in my opinion. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Part two, the stars turn and the time presents itself. You met with Major Garland Briggs. How did you know that? Philip? Actually, I just called to say goodbye. This is Philip Jeffries, right? You're going back in tomorrow, and I will be with Bob again. Who is this? We open this episode with Bill Hastings alone in a jail cell, and he's just sort of very nervously gripping his scalp, like just sort of doing this soothing, massaging motion on his head. Uh, And we get a scene with him and his wife, Phyllis. And this scene is, I think, the closest that we've gotten so far to, like, a true soap opera. Yes, this is once, or like, right away you have, like, this sort of, uh, like a drama, this mystery almost. Like, who is Bill Hastings? Was he involved? How was he involved? Um, and I think we were talking about last episode how right off the bat, like those first three scenes, ask you they kind of ask you a lot of unknowable questions. I think this is the first approachable mystery in the show, um, which is immediately then kind of um, taken over once you see the woodsman in the cell. But at least for the for the opening. Um, I remember being real because just because Matthew Lillard is just such a fantastic actor. You can tell that there's something up, um, mm-hmm. but what exactly it is and uh, how it unfolds at that point, um, I don't think I was too sure at all. No. And I really love 
this actress who plays Phyllis. She's apparently not actually an actress. I found out like she's some sort oh. of um, some sort of socialite. <laughs> I don't. I'm not <laughs> okay. sure. Not sure how she found her way into the show, but I really like her. I think the way that she says some of these lines is just really juicy. Like, I've known about this affair for years, or whatever oh, she yeah. says. The like, whole life in prison, Bill. Like, yeah, it is very soap <laughs> opera. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's it's really good. We don't we don't really get too much of that in this season, but this is definitely one of those moments. Yeah, and I think from seeing them like at the door you know when when she first when they they first show up to arrest bill and then her like concern of the morgans are coming over and then now now the claws so you start to see what's really going on with these people and it's very it's very uh engrossing i'd say we're not gonna spend uh too much time with her uh we'll put a pin in that for now Mm -hmm. um and the other thing notable about this scene is that bill hastings Despite the fact that his fingerprints were found throughout Ruth Davenport's apartment, insists that it was all a dream. That he was in her apartment, but it was a dream, it wasn't real. And I think this is really the first instance in this season that we get of toying with this idea of, of dreams and getting at this notion of subjectivity. I think I just think it's interesting the way that dreams are portrayed in this show, and um, you know we're going to talk mm-hmm. about it a lot throughout the season. But you know, one thing that I think generally about the way that dreams are talked about in this season is that they're they're not really meant as literal as some people take them. I believe, like when we talk about dreams. We're not talking about somebody literally sleeping in a bed and imagining things. It's like we're talking more about like an alternate plane of consciousness or, you know, something something more akin to like imagination. You know what I'm saying? Right. I think, yeah, I think with... I mean, obviously dreams and uh, dream logic and all that stuff is so prevalent in Lynch's work. But with this... With this, uh, with this season and Twin Peaks in general, and mostly with Fire Walk with me, I think dreams almost signify. Uh, I think prophecies maybe too on the nose, but it is this sort of like when characters dream in Twin Peaks, there is always significance to it, um, or at least when it's brought up. So I think with the blending of um, sort of like that, you had a dream, but uh in that dream you touched things and so your fingerprints are now in this physical space right. it's sort of like that's almost like kind of what we're talking about with a lot of this like the metaphysics of twin peaks is that these things which are uh you know simultaneously real and not real and occurring and not occurring in our yes. space uh or almost like parallel to us like um and like it's almost as if those worlds are intersecting like a venn diagram and uh, the dream is like sort of the experience of both of them at once. But it reminded me of just uh, Annie showing up in Laura Palmer's bed and, and telling her what to write in her diary. It's like, cause that's, I think the, f- you know, or one of like the uh, prime examples in Twin Peaks of, you know, someone who's in a dream, having a dream or in a dream. Uh, in that case, turn like uh, traveling through time even uh, and space. And like, I guess, that was what, like when that statement happened. I think the first time I heard it, uh, it was just yet another reason to be excited. Like, okay, we're gonna cross these boundaries in the return. 
Yeah. It's basically, it was a dream, but it happened. I guess it's, it's like, it, it is both. Like, it is both a dream and reality. Um, yeah, and you get, I think Matthew Lillard portrays that, like, it was a dream, the way he says it. <laughs> it's like, he is being viscerally honest. Yeah. Um, He's very and, insistent. Yeah, and it's like his, you could really, or at least I could really sense that um, desperation. And, like, I know I sound crazy right now. Like, the, I, I'm the I'm the person who's the most upset about it. Um that sort of feeling of being trapped like is this is this really happening and then as she leaves the cell oh my god oh my god he just keeps repeating it like in this sh- state of shock mm-hmm. um and having been you know a high, a high school principal who i think just bit off more than you could chew when it came to an interdimensional time traveling wormhole woodsman murderers yeah he's look man <laughs> he's he's way in over his head he's just the principal he read a book one time you heard about mm-hmm. alternate realities, and and now look at him—he's in a jail cell next to a freaking woodsman. So yeah, slippery slope, man. So yeah, so yeah, like like we said, this is our first glimpse of a woodsman this season. Who? Yep. Who just seemed to constantly be circling this Hastings Ruth Davenport Major Briggs plotline. So like we it, didn't. No, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You finish. I was just gonna say, like most of the instances in which we see the woodsman apart from obviously the mr c resurrection whatever it is scenes yep they pretty much always involve hastings ruth davenport or major briggs like we see the woodsman mm-hmm. again in the morgue where they're looking at mr uh, or major briggs's body obviously one of them kills bill hastings uh when they find the portal to the zone with yep. ruth davenport's body so it's just interesting um, the way that the woodsmen the woodsmen are it's like they're somehow keeping tabs on all of the the real world developments with this plot line yeah they almost seem like spies um, yeah. what so when we first saw that woodsman we didn't know even what the woodsmen were it was a like kind of the first example so where did your mind go when you first saw <laughs> oh that boy thing? honestly I if it went to the same place as I so yeah so my first thought was that it reminded me of the guy behind Winkies at Mulholland Bingo. Drive. Yep. Bingo. Yep, yep. exactly. Yeah, I'm sure we're not alone in that. And, the, you know, just the sort of dirty, coded as possibly homeless, mm-hmm. um, definitely definitely gave me strong Winkies vibes. And I, I think that's um, that's a Lynchian thing, too, to sort of... I don't know. It's it's a little weird. The way that he often equates like physical decrepitude with like evil or mm-hmm. sickness or something like that. It's it's, it's interesting. It's a literary um, trope even, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned before that we weren't going to see too much of Phyllis Hastings from this point. She exits Bill's cell. She meets up with his lawyer, George, who uh, we find out she's having an affair with. Um, I mean, obviously, that guy's mm-hmm. a, he's a silver fox. Yeah, yeah obviously. Who if I've seen one. And uh, she tells him that Bill knows about their affair. She goes home, and Mr. C is waiting for her. And she sees him, and it really seems as though she recognizes him, just based on the way that she says, what are you doing here? Well, it seemed like not only did she recognize him, but she was happy to see him, almost. 
or even for a moment. Yeah, it was almost like a happy surprise. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? You know, and it's worth noting that Bill had said to her in the jail cell that he suspected that she was having an affair with somebody else besides George. Yep. So perhaps we can read into the idea that maybe, maybe she was having some sort of sexual relationship with Mr. C. Obviously no way to know, but... I would feel very comfortable reading into like the subtext there and saying that that was the case. Because he's, he says, like, I know about you and George, and maybe even someone else. And just sort of the emphasis which with he says the line, and then directly afterwards... Uh, she does greet him with like sort of like what are you doing here like this sort of like he's uh she knows who he is uh she's met him before like i don't know i I felt that that was my first impression right away right she's not Um, scared by him right away she's just surprised to see him and then you know him saying this is george's gun um implying again that like they both know who george is like there's some sort of mutual i don't know i would and, and since that is the end of Phyllis and we don't ever get any more resolution given the few breadcrumbs yeah I'd say she's probably somehow in Mr. C's uh, circle however that is yeah and we we know generally what Mr. C is interested in here which is getting coordinates to the zone from Bill's secretary so we can probably extrapolate that him manipulating Phyllis is somehow a means to an end of accomplishing that goal. The only thing that stands out to me now is that when he shoots her, there is some sort of interesting camera uh, (laughs) effect, like some sort of weird, uh, almost like when when the enemies run away from you in Dark Souls and they get really far away and they get kind of like (laughs) pixelated and weird. That's almost how she like fell. Um, Yeah, there's there's like a weird jump that happens. Yeah. It's like as soon as she gets shot, it's like the camera does a little stutter. Mm-hmm. I don't really get it. It does it again, I believe, uh, at a couple points. I think when Duncan Todd ultimately gets shot by Chantel later in the season. Uh-huh. I think it happens there too. And I'm not not 100% sure why that happens. I part of me suspects that the effects budget for this show was pretty low and yeah. that rather than you know, animating some CGI blood to a, to a really uh, extensive degree, they decided to just sort of mask it with this jump effect. I don't know. Maybe it was a conscious artistic decision, or or maybe it was just a a necessity of production. I think it blends into the overall aesthetic of the show. So yeah. you know, you yeah, don't bat an eyelash. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me, honestly. Like I, one thing that I've found really surprising in hearing people's reactions to the show is just how many people are really truly bothered by the effects in the show i mean yeah they're not great i mean no they're, even, they're not they're not even the billowing curtains sometime you can kind of see through them but I, it was never once a like distraction to me no it's it's not but it's just it's been surprising to me to hear how many people really were bothered by it just because i never I don't know. I never, I never really cared, and it's also like I said, it, it could just be a side effect of you know the production limitations that a lot of the effects are kind of cheap. But it's also very fitting with David Lynch's early career. If you go back and watch his short films or even Eraserhead, there's a lot of very very cheap, crude effects there, 
And even if you look at a lot of his paintings and his visual art, they, they tend to follow that as well. So I kind of think that Lynch also just really enjoys the artificiality of it. I don't mm-hmm. think that he's interested in trying to convince you that some of the effects are real. Yeah, I mean, like, when you're looking down at, like, the head of Ruth Davenport and the body of Major Briggs, it definitely doesn't look like a real human no. body. But I <laughs> no. didn't... But that actually made it more unsettling to me was that it was this sort of like bloated almost like glossy looking weird fucking alien who knows what human high i had no idea what it was it was um i and, and when i think of that like that's one of the examples of because when i walked looked at it the second time i was like yeah that does look a little under uh i don't know certain sure. standards but it looks I've, more it looks more aligned with what you would see on an average television show yeah, sure. Um, but I don't think that there was ever, like, a moment in the show where the digital effects bothered me, um, or at least in a way that that distracted me from in, enjoying all of the other, like, things that were happening. No, and then once you get to part eight, it's like all that kind of goes out the window because uh, everything there looks amazing and is totally convincing, so... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and even some of the stuff, like, when you, like, first see... Um, who we can presume is Judy or mother of the experiment in the box like that that shit was nice like it wasn't great looking but it was just like perfectly artistically um, like appropriate I don't know super effective yeah and I think that's that's generally the idea of special effects anyway is to to bring out the uh, the other things in the show I agree okay so Phyllis is killed, and from there we get our first appearance of Duncan Todd, who tells his underling Roger to, quote, tell her she has the job, and gives him some money. I think we can pretty much deduce that the her in question is actually Lorraine, who we're going to see in a few episodes, who gives word to Ike the Spike to kill Dougie, and Mr. C really is the mastermind behind this whole operation. The farther you get into the show, the more it just becomes apparent that Mr. C is really the puppet master behind pretty much everything that happens. Like, a lot of the mysteries, like, we mentioned the last episode, The Glass Box, and now this whole plot in Vegas, which ultimately uh, is in place to kill Cooper, it's all Mr. C's doing, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's funny how, for however many people were you know understandably upset that agent cooper as we know him wasn't a major character uh at least in terms of like time on screen in the return i i think that we can it can be easy to forget that if you take the charisma of the original agent cooper uh and all of the things that were likable about him and you completely invert them um Mr. C exceeds uh, what what agent cooper does on the good side in terms of evil he is just like this He's got his fingers everywhere, and uh, with the with a completely like it's it's the opposite of charisma, whatever it is. But it still draws um, so many of those people and those like in that underworld to him. And you can, it's just like sort of implied from the moment you see him, like this dude for the last twenty five years has just climbed up that ladder of the criminal underworld, and probably through like supernatural means of killing people 
made everyone absolutely completely terrified of him and myself included watching <laughs> so i think it is just a, an interesting statement to like just how likable and lovable agent cooper is and then just how actually like detestable and crazy manipulative mr c is right just mm-hmm. obviously to completely different ends he's built what appears to be a multi-billion dollar criminal empire that spans across the globe so yeah it's, it's I mean, again isn't that the the theme of like the evil that men do like throughout bob and like the atomic bomb and all that stuff it's like when you imply that someone is running a billion dollar criminal underworld uh business you can then just think of all the all the lives ruined by you know drug overdoses and uh illegal guns trades like that's the kind of stuff that mr c is like involved in uh like just when you like obviously none of that is in the show but when you really think about like what that implies and like just what a force of evil that actually is yeah he is safe to say a cancer upon the world he's a bad dude yeah he just sort of (laughs) he just uses and disposes with everybody and everything in his path like everything is merely a means to an end and he is just completely unfeeling so on a related note we get the diner scene with Mr. C, Ray, Daria, and Jack, Mr. C asks Ray about the coordinates that uh, Ray has been tasked with getting from Betty, Bill Hastings' secretary. Mm-hmm. And it's here that we get the now famous, I don't need anything, I want, which is just a, just a really deliciously cold, mm-hmm. evil little monologue here from Mr. C. It's it's it, it's it's one of the most chilling moments I think for his character. I think it's uh, perfectly villainous. Like it, it really does establish his dominance, even like over the other bad guys, uh, and just his temperament and how he, you know, just a glimpse into how that dude conducts himself. Yeah, and he's clearly suspicious of Ray to a certain extent. Like he mm-hmm. says, "Oh, funny how she'll only give it to you." And he has that line where he's like, well, maybe that'll be a good time for you to learn to mind your own business. Like, he, mm-hmm. he's clearly, he's he's working with Ray. He views Ray as a necessary means to an end, but he, is, he doesn't really trust him and he doesn't really like him, I don't think. Not that Mr. C actually likes anybody or anything. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and given, too, that um, he had to obviously, maybe I'm just thinking too much into it, but he had to uh, know that the blue rose the task force was going to be on him too so someone's somewhere has got to be a mole and then how just you know how what information he reveals to who is obviously uh, vital to him so that conversation i think it made me wonder what ray was up to also um just like sort of the smirk on his face and i don't know yeah and we we do find out that ray was indeed working with the fbi and right possibly philip jeffries in addition to that I don't know. That's that's weird. We'll we'll talk about all of that down the road. But yeah. yeah, it looks like Mr. C's instincts were actually correct on that one. So we get a scene that I have a really hard time placing into the series as far as the chronology goes, which mm-hmm. is Hawk going to visit Glastonbury Grove. And yeah. 
I think we should probably use this opportunity to uh, right some wrongs here because... Oh, yeah, we screwed up. Yeah, entirely my fault. We, in the first episode, totally forgot to mention the Log Lady. The return of the Log Lady, Dylan. I know, and, and it's it's such a heartwarming uh, moment, too, just the stoic face of Hawk and, and then just her sitting there like when i first saw her you know with the with the uh, without her hair and with the uh, things in her nose it i don't know that was the first that was some of my first like feels moments with twin peaks um the return i was like oh my god Um, yeah just but i think there's some actually phenomenal content in that conversation too that we were uh remiss to not discuss yeah um yeah and just just to sort of recap what what happens in that first episode the log lady's on the phone with hawk in episode one and she says that something is missing and you have to find it it has something to do with special agent dale cooper and she also mentions that the way that you'll find it has something to do with his heritage Mm -hmm. which i don't know about you i got a little worried when she said that uh word how well just considering the way that Hawk was portrayed a little bit in oh, the sure. first run of the show with the of whole course. the mystical Native American trope. Yeah, I was, yeah, I I was a little, I was a little worried that it was going to go down that road, but I think, thankfully, it ended up being relatively harmless the way it ended up playing out. So, in this episode, Hawk is walking towards Glastonbury Grove, and he says something interesting. He says. Uh, something's happening here tonight and he gets to the pool of scorched engine oil and he sees the curtains of the red room just sort of you know fade in and out he talks to the log lady for a little bit where she says the line from the episode title the stars Mm -hmm. turn and a time presents itself and i don't super know what to make of this scene (laughs) i don't it's it seems weird in the chronology um do you yeah what are you, what are your thoughts about it i think i think since it's shown in um like almost parallel to uh i'm sorry agent cooper in the red room talking to the arg the evolution of the arm and there's this whole thing about how he can go now i've always looked at it as if uh the log lady was tipping off hawk to go to Glastonbury Grove at the time that Agent Cooper is supposed to come right. back out. Right, uh, her yeah. lo- her log knows this. It told her she might not even know necessarily. Um, I've always kind of got that vibe about the log lady that she's almost like a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a a conduit between the log and and everyone else. Um, and I was like, she says things that she maybe has no responsibility to even know. She's just supposed to say them um, because once uh you get into the whole plot of mr c subverting their plan to get him back in there um it explains why hawk doesn't actually see anything besides the curtains and so that's that's where i i thought it was going yeah that's that's pretty much my best guess as well and that's why we don't actually see anything happen here because he's maybe expecting to see cooper and obviously cooper doesn't come out right then um, so yeah, interesting, interesting little scene. Then we get into a really intense, lore-significant Red Room section here. 
Yeah, this is the meat of this episode, I would say. Yeah, this is this is like the really juicy shit from part two, I think. It actually it, it plays out over a couple different sections in this episode, but I think it'd be useful just to sort of tackle it all at one time here. Agreed, um, yes. So we get into the red room, we see Cooper sitting in the chair, and we see Mike, Al Strobel, the return of Al Strobel. Al is looking at Cooper very intently, and he says, is it future or is it past? A line that he's going to say a couple more times this season. It's very notable. I think we talked a little bit last episode about the significance of that line and how maybe it's intended to maybe dissuade us from trying to make too much logical sense about what's happening here as far as the timeline goes because I contend that you can't really piece together a strict chronology of the things that happen here. Probably not. And um, I guess that is, you know, since we were talking about how like a lot, we think a lot of the, the metaphysical stuff takes place sort of out of time as it relates to the, the human elements of Twin Peaks. I think that's sort of, like you can almost I imagine you can pop out of the red room anywhere any when I guess so um the whole like the title of the stars turn and time presents itself I think it, uh maybe even referring to that like we were talking about before like how the planes almost intersect at a certain time and now if you're here at this certain hour you can um go into this timeless spaceless thing but the is it future or is a past line I think is among the most significant in the return, especially with how it relates to the the ending of the return and uh, something that Philip, obviously going way in the future, but something that Philip Jeffrey says about Gordon Cole in the unofficial version or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like when you change the when you change the past, uh, does it become the future or or what? Because if you change the past after the past, so I don't now I'm lost, but. Um, <laughs> But I think See, almost, you can't do it. You can't I, make sense of it. I think that's the point. I think I just yeah. had to ramble until it made no sense to prove, <laughs> to prove that it makes no sense. Hey, that is the Twin Peaks way. You yeah. just you, you you talk yourself into circles until you you finally give up. That's we're, that's the we're way. We're towing a fucking fine line here, Nick. We we can go into really crazy <laughs> psychobabble any moment. We need to check each other. Yeah, exactly. We so really are. Keep, we're we're walking a tightrope. Yeah, keep at me all from times. from sounding crazy, please. I I will. I'll do my best. No promises. Um, So we see Laura for the first time. She recreates a bunch of stuff from the original run. You know, she she kisses Cooper. She says her, my arms bend back line. She also tells him, curiously enough, you can go out now. Which is odd because immediately after this, we hear from the evolution of the arm that Cooper can't go out until his doppelganger comes back in. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've i always found that extremely strange. Yeah, I have a thought on that, but we can get through her whole sure. stuff, then we'll talk about it. Sure. Then she does something totally unexpected, which is that she unhinges her face, and in place of her face is a giant uh, beaming light, mm-hmm. which is... This move of unhinging her face is something that we will see again. Uh, I believe in part 14, when we see Sarah Palmer do it, 
uh, in that amazing bar scene where she reveals like a blackness in her face with like a hand and a few other tendril looking things and says do you want to fuck with this I, I, I just think that the purpose of this is just to set Laura and Sarah in opposition to one another you know certainly like, yeah you know like Laura is the light Sarah who is arguably under the influence of Judy is the dark you know which would sort of jive with all the stuff that happens in part eight with the Laura orb being sent down and all that stuff. So yeah, watching it, having seen part eight, it made a lot more, or I had a lot, there was a lot more to tie it to when I first watched it. I thought it was some sort of symbolism of Laura as like a, I don't know, almost like a redemptive figure, like some sort of, I don't know, like a, like a Christ figure almost. Um, like she was there to, you know, she like the Laura is the light, which is still almost sort of how you could interpret some of those the part 18s but we'll get to that then but as far as the you can go out now what she says to cooper i think it's clear that whatever whenever uh that is that's when i guess the 25 year period where they can exist like the doppelganger can exist outside is up like everyone seems to be aware of it the arm uh, the arm i'm suspicious of or the evolution of the arm I feel like it might be in cahoots with Mr. C or Judy or someone just based on the whole, uh, the non-existent part mm-hmm. that, we'll, that we can talk about now. Right. You mean specifically the the doppelganger of the evolution of the arm. The big old tree with the brain. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because the, the tree says, yes. the, because the tree says my doppelganger and then the thing that shouts non-existent at Cooper is the doppelganger of the tree. Oh, 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 right. Oh, yeah. Shit. Okay. That yeah. convolutes it so much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So my whole, my whole read on this is that, like you said, Laura, Laura probably thinks that, you know, the 25 year period is going to be up and that the doppelganger will be sucked into the room at which point Cooper is going to be able to leave. However, what happens is that we get this curious shot that I never really paid much credence to until this current rewatch where we get it's it's like the red room sort of splits or it like it's trying to like duplicate itself like we see the red room and there's a superimposition of it that sort of peels away from it. Which I think is I know curious. What you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, and then Mike, who's still in the room with the evolution of the arm, says something is wrong. And so at that point, that's when Cooper is confronted by the arm's doppelganger causing the floor to open up. And that's when Cooper gets sucked through. So Mm -hmm. I think that what's happened is that Mr. C's whole plan to keep himself out of the lodge and replace Dougie with Cooper, I think that whole thing flies in the face of like the quote-unquote rules of the red room right. and i think that's why mike is so caught off guard and why laura probably doesn't see it coming so right like so mr c uh you know subverted all of them and and yes. including cooper and laura and mike okay yeah that yeah. so the whole the whole concept of the doppelganger of the arm i now that now i do remember the the arm saying that is there anything that looks different about it when it um uh, it's, I believe its head is different. 
like okay. the doppelganger the doppelganger's head is like sort of a sickly yellow color yeah which is different from which is different from the regular arm which has sort of more of a sort of more of a pink fleshy color to it interesting i actually should watch that whole sequence again yeah mm-hmm. so you know possibly the arm doppelganger is <laughs> god some of the things you have to say when talking about this show is just like i know completely the, ridiculous the evolution of the arms doppelganger <laughs> yes <laughs> i love this show so much it's beautiful uh, yeah, so it's it's possible that somehow all these doppelgangers are in league with one another, or maybe they just they they're in cahoots or they they share a similar end. I don't know, just something to consider. Right. Um, whew. All right. So what else happens during this? Like like I said, this is a, this is a real real yeah. dense well, series of scenes. Right. We can here. go. We can let's go back to the the, the Lars Light. Yes. Because then mm-hmm. after that, there's a ton of shit that happens. Okay. Yeah. So. She lets out a blood-curdling scream, at which point she is ripped away from the red room. Before that see... happens, she she whispers to Cooper again. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So she oh, whispers yeah. to Cooper, and we know that in the original run, it's told to us that what she's whispering to Cooper is, you know, my father is the one who killed me. Mm-hmm. This time, we don't hear what she says. And Cooper appears pretty disturbed by Grunt what she has even. to say. Yeah, yeah. He lets out a little noise and just sort of like makes this face like, oh, oh no. Um, oh dear. Oh, oh my. Uh, yeah, I don't. I personally don't think that this is anything. I, th- I think it's just supposed to be like kind of a a cool, evocative little mystery. What say you? Well, I, I definitely think there is some significance to it just based on how that's the very last thing we see, I think, in Part 18. Is it not? Mm, well, yeah, over the credits. Right. So yeah. there must be some significance to it, and I'm sure it has something to do with um, with the whole story in and of itself. But I agree with you in that we probably shouldn't spend too much time trying to figure out exactly what she said. And I don't think that that's even the point. Like evocative is what the word you used. I think it is that it's sort of um, where, where there's a a whole new, like if the, if the first whisper was to, you know, reveal the initial mystery, well, we're dealing with something new now. We're dealing with something else completely, um, completely different or, or, maybe evolved from that yeah some, something probably even deeper yeah know? i like like i, have, I, like, I would su- like i would suspect that if anything it's probably something along the lines of laura letting cooper know that he can't save her or that or maybe even that she's letting him know that he's been in the lodge for 25 years because he probably has no conception of time it could be yeah, it could be absolutely anything. I think the point is what we get, or what we get from that scene. It's that Laura told him something; it was bad, and then what happens afterwards obviously can can even contextualize how bad it was. Maybe. Yeah. So we get we get the uh, the famous Shirley scream, which she's the best in the biz at screaming. Um, she's ripped away, and immediately after that we get this pretty incredible shot 
of the curtains of the red room like sort of uh fluttering back and out of frame and the white horse standing there in the room Mm -hmm. and the white horse is a really interesting thing that i think generally we're supposed to associate with evil or possibly more specifically judy and i think that the fact that the scream that we hear laura palmer let out is the exact same scream that she lets out in the woods when she is ripped away from Cooper in part 17, Mm -hmm. I think that that is signifying to us that Judy is present and that Judy is behind this. Yeah. I think maybe even this just occurred to me as you were talking, maybe there's meant to be, or maybe we we can interpret that there is some juxtaposition between those scenes where, um, where Laura is ripped away ostensibly by Judy and, um, I guess put in that pocket dimension or ends up there somehow. And uh, that scene where maybe that is what she's revealing to Cooper is like the, you know, the outcome of how this is going to happen. And then like how we were saying that these spaces sort of intertwine. um, This is that occurrence just in the black lodge space. Um, Mm. And then the curtains are, I think there's a significance to the curtains being drawn um, and revealing that behind them was Judy. Um, right. Because I think it gets confusing when initially the Black Lodge, when we first learned of it, is a place of evil, definitely. Um, or it's definitely a place where evil is, whether or not it's evil itself. Um, and then we're sort of introduced to this concept of the White Lodge, like like as if it's literally going to be black and white. But characters that we find redemptive or even good end up in the Black Lodge all the time. Um, and then you have like the... You know the owl cave ring, um, which can pull people in and out. Um, I don't know. I think maybe that this scene and what Lara whispered has like a lot of significance to do with like how all of the plan unfolds. Or since since the Black Lodge maybe is timeless, um, she already knows how it's going to happen. I don't know. I think I'm starting to go crazy. But, <laughs> yeah. See, um, it's you. You can really get lost in the weeds here really quick. Yeah, but I think, yeah. I mean, maybe the notable thing to say a lot of times with this show is there may be some significance to this scene <laughs> related to this other scene based on these things. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, with regards to the scream and it being identical to the one in the woods, I think that there's, I don't know, I think that there's validity to the idea that perhaps they're actually the same event happening simultaneously. Uh yeah, we just sometimes we have to we have to reconcile things that maybe hurt our brains a little bit. So does that does the when she snatches Lara away is that part eighteen or part seventeen? That's part seventeen. Oh, conspiracy theory. Here we go. Part two, part seventeen, second to last episode, second episode. There's some mm-hmm. sort of mirror image happening mm-hmm. here. I call him yeah. calling it. There's actually a lot of weird synchronicities like that. Like somebody pointed out the fact that. Sam and Tracy, them having sex happens about 30 minutes into part one. Mm-hmm. And that Diane and Cooper having sex happens about 30 minutes from the end. You know? Yep. Right. So, so you know. Twin Peaks, man. Yeah. Hard hard to say how much is intentional, but uh, fascinating regardless. I mean, when you talk about something like duality, it's such a broad theme. But I think that it's... Uh, we should remember that the show is called Twin Peaks and there is always this yes. 
sort of air of uh of, of their everything has a counterpart basically mm-hmm. yeah that's that is very much a a core theme of the show i would say let's see what else here so we mentioned before briefly the evolution of the arm uh boy is, isn't it amazing that we could just sort of uh roll right past this so the yeah, evolution exactly. so the evolution of the arm this is the new incarnation of the man from another place from the original run the reason Michael J. Anderson is not playing this character um, is pretty, I don't know, it's pretty uncomfortable. I'll, I'll let everybody Google it, but suffice to say that he has some issues with David Lynch and has said some things about him that mm, probably discouraged David Lynch from ever working with him again. So I would guess that that is why he has been replaced by an electrical tree with a weird piece of meat. So. I wonder if it's a piece of meat related to the piece of meat in Bill Hastings' trunk. Yeah, it's a piece of meat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the evolution of the arm, he, he very notably tells him uh, 253, which is a number that we will hear again. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting also that despite the fact that the subtitles say 253 the arm actually says 257 ooh yeah interesting uh, I didn't pick up on that yeah I have no earthly idea what that could mean I don't know if it's I don't think it's a mistake but who knows that, that's one I'm not even going near <laughs> <laughs> yeah I just I, I, uh, I don't I don't What's have it? any thoughts on it whatsoever I just felt it was necessary to point out there's probably some weird geometric uh, theorem that someone's going to come up with that's proving that the that I don't know. I don't. Want, once Ugh. it gets into numbers, I get lost. <laughs> yeah, it, Lynch. Lynch loves his numerology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's some stuff in the um, the behind the scenes features of the Blu-ray. I don't know if you've seen any of that stuff, but no, I haven't. Oh man, you got to watch it. It is so good when he sets his alarm in the morning the time at which he sets his alarm has to add up to seven like the digits have to add up to seven that's so, so it'd be like yeah so it'd be like you know 601 or 502 or something like that that's so inconvenient <laughs> i don't know how else to put it like that's such a uh, that would cause me so much stress oh man yeah it's uh David Lynch is uh, he's a special guy. Okay, so I think that pretty much does it for the Red Room stuff in this episode. It's it's a lot. So from there we see a scene, another very weird scene of Mister C meeting with Jack. He is retrieving Bill Hastings' secretary's car, which I believe he's he's bugged the car for surveillance purposes, something like that. Yeah. And he calls Jack over and he does one of the weirdest maneuvers that we see Mr. C do in the show, which is that he grabs him by the face and just starts sort of sort of rubbing him. For the life of me, dude, I'll never know. I'll never know dude, what <laughs> what that was supposed so, to be. This is so awkward. So he he grabs him by the face and just starts rubbing his cheeks back and forth slowly. And Jack just sort of lets it happen. He has, like, this faraway look in his eyes as Mr. C just sort of rubs him. 
I guess we're supposed to think that that's what kills him somehow. Uh, yeah, I mean... Because we find out in the next scene that Mr. C killed Jack, so either that's what killed him, or it maybe sort of hypnotized him into a state of submission that allowed him to kill him. Maybe that was uh, some some cheeky way of, of showing us Mr. C feeling him out. Like, I don't know. It, it's just like, you get this very uncomfortable scene of Mr. C massaging this man's cheeks for like 10 seconds straight and that's and then it just cuts and then you find out yeah that guy died like <laughs> that's yeah. Mr. C he just fucking he shows up he rubs your cheeks and then in the next scene you're toast yeah I, I have to admit I find this whole thing very funny I, I don't think I, it's supposed to be funny but it's just it's so <laughs> I don't know man maybe I'm dark but that that idea of just like he just just his face is getting all squished up like I laughed at that <laughs> just he looks funny and then he's but then he's dead like <laughs> yeah ostensibly because of it who knows but didn't he say that he found out uh about Daria and Ray from Jack no 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 so we're no. we're going let, let's get into that right now because that's yeah. the next scene we see is Mr. C showing up to the motel to meet Daria uh-huh. Mr. C is apparently recording the phone conversation that Daria is having with Ray in which Ray talks to Daria about killing Mr. C, and also that he has been arrested for smuggling guns over a state line, I believe. Yep. And so that's how that's how Mr. C finds out about the Ray and Daria plot. And it's also our introduction to Mr. C's very weird semi-magical relationship with technology in this season mm-hmm. because he has this recording device that apparently is recording live and he's like listening to it as it happens from the phone and then he immediately plays it back for Daria it's really I, I don't does this have any real world analog that you know of no well, I mean <laughs> I don't not that there's like and yeah, there's no. I don't know how you would bug someone in real time, but that and it confused me too because it's just yeah. I it's was just like, weird. is that a different conversation? But it ended the exact same way. Who knows, man? He is the yeah. uncanny valley. Like it is. It is weird. And then we get uh, also, you know, after Mister C kills Daria, there's also the scene with the briefcase, which is also a really weird instance with technology. It seems I think that's that sig- very significant. Yeah. It seems that in addition to being like this super strong, cunning lodge being, Mr. C is also some sort of technomancer that has like a, a supernatural command over technology, uh, which we see several times in the season. It's it's odd. I mean, I think there's something to be said about electricity and uh, the relationship that those lodge beings have to electricity. Whether that maybe there's supernatural means that he's channeling into, um, like a some technological device, but um, again, man, it's Twin Peaks. Like, I don't question it. Mister C's mad. I mean, he, we know he's magic. Like, it's just now it's a matter of like, is his iPhone magic also? Um, I don't know. He's yeah, definitely. But I think the the briefcase scene, um, is super compelling. Uh, we should talk about yeah. that. Yeah, we we will talk about that in in just a moment here. Um, so Mr. C has this scene on the bed with Daria, and I would say, other than maybe the interrogation scenes with Gordon and Albert and Tammy and Diane, this is probably the most 
chilling that Mr. C is in the entire season, in my opinion. It's just, yeah, one of the more unwatchable sequences. I, I really don't like viewing it, to be honest. It's, yeah, it's really rough. He, he punches Daria a lot. She meekly asks him, are you going to kill me? And he just completely dispassionately says, yes, Daria. And Kyle MacLachlan is just bone chilling here. Like that's the is, second time he says he's going to kill her too. You know, yeah, it's like he, he oh. says a couple times, like, "Yep, I'm going to kill you." Just very matter of factly. I mean, he really has no reason to lie to her. You know, it's not like she's gonna. It's not like she's gonna get away or anything like that. Well, that's it's, what has made it hard to watch for me. Is he says like, "Yep, I'm going to kill you," and then she pauses for about two seconds, and then lurches forward with all of her strength, and he's just—it's like nothing. It's just. Meh right back and then when the first time he hits her it just made me like queasy because it's so real a feeling you know of all the things yeah. that mr c is unreal about his his violence is very real looking and it is not a comfortable scene to to watch at all yeah and i think it's worth noting that mr c it just seems like with this scene and maybe when he's talking to diane later it just seems like he's taking a little bit more glee in toying with them, whereas when he's dealing with men, it's a little bit more businesslike. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and I think I think we should even start to think of Mister C as partially an embodiment of Bob, because yeah. Bob mm-hmm. Bob was the same thing um, with the women that he was tormenting. Um, yeah, even exactly. Like through Leland, uh, like. Uh, there's definitely this uh, if if their goal is to create Garmin uh, Bozia or whatever the 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 food stuff of human suffering and anguish Mr. C's got he's got a pretty uh, locked down formula or I should say Bob has a locked down formula that you see Mr. C uh, carrying out in grisly awful ways yeah for sure I, I think you're right to point out the influence of Bob here because one would think that the doppelganger wouldn't really have interest in these sort of, you know, earthbound uh, delights, you know, from his point of view. Mm-hmm. But Bob, you know, he's sort of a a walking embodiment of, of the id. And, mm. you know, he, he wants to take advantage of, of women sexually and all this sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's just... Oh, boy, Mr. C, he's he's fucking creepy. Another notable thing about this scene is that it's about as much exposition as we get as far as what Mr. C's motivations are. We hear very explicitly from him that he is trying to avoid being sucked into the Black Lodge. He says he has a plan for that. And he also shows Daria this playing card this ace of spades that has a symbol on it that i think is probably safe to associate with judy right that's where it's if if we agree that the mother or the experiment if we agree that that's judy then yeah um that's clearly the same likeness yeah and i and i think that is just the way that i'm going to talk about it throughout this season because i i think like there's enough evidence to suggest that the experiment and Judy are the same entity that I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna talk about it. Like that's the case. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree. 
Same. So, so yeah, and we see this symbol a couple of other times throughout the season. We see it on Hawk's map that he shows to Truman where he tells him, oh, you don't ever want to know about that. Mm-hmm. And it's also on the slip of paper that Major Briggs left for Bobby many years ago for him to find. So, you know, and we know that Major Briggs has knowledge of all this sort of lodge weirdness. So I guess guess that would check out that he would have some knowledge of Judy or at least some extreme negative force, as Gordon Cole refers to it. Right. And and I I think it's interesting that he... We're not sure. I guess at that point, when he shows the playing card, and he says, "This is what I want." If he if he's wants to, what he wants to do when he finds Judy, does he want to team up with her? Does he want to take her down? What is exactly yeah. their relationship? Which I think gets opaquely extrapol- extrapolated upon in the next uh, little sequence. Yeah. So you're right. We really don't know what he wants with Judy exactly. My inkling is that he probably wants to destroy Judy. The reason the reason I think this is because I believe that the person that he's talking to is Judy. I agree with you 100%. It's not Philip Jeffries for sure. No, it is I think we can pretty safely assume that it's not Philip Jeffries. I just really my reason for thinking that it's Judy is just the process of elimination because she, because the voice says a, a few key things here. She says, I missed you in New York. That's the big one for me. Yeah, which obviously is where we see Judy punch through the glass box. The other thing that the voice says is, you're coming back in and I will be with Bob again. Right. And if we assume that Judy is the experiment... We know that the experiment created Bob. Who else would want to be with Bob again other than, than Judy? And the experiment is also referred to as the mother, right? Yep. Or or maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe we can, maybe that is a leap because the, is that only right. in when she says my mother uh, is coming? Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably get into that a little bit next episode for sure. Yeah. But either way, um, I think it's safe to say if that you know, if if Judy is a mother to anyone based on that scene in episode, in part eight, it's Bob. Um, right. And also, what's interesting to me is the implication of you're coming back in. I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm reading too much into it, uh, but is that implying that Judy is in the Black Lodge, and then you know we obviously see the white horse in the Black Lodge earlier. Um, to me, yeah, possibly. I don't, to I don't me, know. I don't know. If, I don't know if Judy is like necessarily a resident of the black lodge it almost seems to me like she's sort of like she's sort of bigger than that me like too she's, yeah like she's sort of this embodiment of like an ancient evil that perhaps has the ability to traverse the lodges but maybe isn't isn't bound to it in the way that creatures like mike are for example yeah, which to me it's almost like the white horse is an aspect of Judy. Yeah, um, it's it's a symbol, I would say. Like, right. More than anything, like I, don't I think, think it's, it's I don't think the white horse is literally Judy. It's just it's just it's the right. show's way of signaling to us that Judy is near, uh, which yeah. which kind of uh, which kind of tracks with the fact that we see in the original run. I forget exactly when this happens, but Sarah Palmer sees the vision of the white horse. Mm-hmm. And if we assume that Sarah Palmer 
is under the influence of, of Judy and has been infected with this energy when she was a child, then th- that really makes sense, I think. So what's confusing to me, and, well, we can talk, well, this will segue us into the Sarah Palmer uh, part, but what's interesting to me is, like, the question of, was Sarah Palmer always a host for Judy? Or, I mean, obviously, part eight would make you think that, but, or is there some significance to, like, Judy escaping into our reality through the glass box and then maybe even finding going to Twin Peaks and finding Sarah Palmer and taking up residence with her then again mm-hmm. timelines they're going to be the death of us but um <laughs> yeah I don't know my yeah my I don't think that Sarah Palmer is necessarily inhabited by Judy herself I think it I think the idea is more like she's influenced by Judy in some way like she's she's inhabited by the essence of Judy. You know what I mean? Like she's yeah. sort of she's sort of indirectly doing Judy's bidding somehow or something like that. Right. I just you know I guess saying? I just want to know or she's I'm like wondering. An ex- she's an extension of Judy, I guess. Sure. Yeah, she's um yeah, some like an analog almost. But mm-hmm. uh what but I just it makes me wonder is like the portrayal of Ju- of uh Sarah Palmer through the original run and like watching it again obviously i don't think david lynch or mark frost had any idea at the time but like how 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 that implicates uh the canon i don't know yeah i think that thematically it could just be a way to account for the fact that sarah palmer knew that her husband was abusing her daughter and did yeah. nothing right 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 that passivity is sort of um is implicated in some way yeah, I can definitely see that, and that's something that I probably wouldn't have occurred to me right off the bat. That's why I'm yeah, glad I'm doing it, this but, but podcast again. with you, Nick. Yeah, wait, what? So that's why I'm glad I'm doing this podcast with you, Nick. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. To get all of the answers about Twin Peaks factually from you, so <laughs> yep. no pressure. So as far as Cooper's motivations for wanting to get with Judy, it would seem that Judy has an antagonistic relationship with him, that she she's trying to get him to get him back you know it would see it would seem that pretty much all the lodge forces even from the white lodge are very upset that cooper and bob are running amok in the real world it's really it's really fucking them up that's the theme uh in fire walk with me as well uh that bob has sort of kind of gone rogue and he's going to inhabit inhabit laura palmer rather than uh, letting her die with the ring on so that she can go back into the Black Lodge and they can all feed on her. I think that's right. like sort of Bob's deal is that Bob doesn't play by the rules. Um, but what's interesting to me, I guess, is what is then the relationship between Bob and Judy? Because if we can uh, assume that Bob is motivating Mr. C, at least in some part, um, you know, like he's is he trapped is he like the, is he trapped only by judy um or is it does he have some some reason to be wanting it to escape her as well or it uh, i should, should probably stop calling her her <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm struggling with the same thing um i sort of think of bob as like judy's fail son like mm-hmm. he, he sort of has a, a mind of his own and motivations apart from judy i get the sense that bob probably has gone off the reservation a little bit yep. and that he's not necessarily under Judy's influence anymore and that he's, he's gone rogue, like you said, to a certain right. extent. Right. Right. 
and that so. it takes forces of uh, <laughs> multiple planes of existence just to to curb him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We should mention also that in the red room scene, we get first and really only glimpse of Ray Wise, who I think even the biggest fans of the return would say is criminally underused. I agree. I mean, for such a phenomenal actor and even in this one scene, he's just so just cryptically unsettling. Yeah. I don't know what happened. I don't know if there were scheduling conflicts. Maybe that really is just the way that he was written into the season. But the fact that we get literally two words from Ray Wise here Mm -hmm. is hard to defend i think i i mean i mean i don't know where else i mean obviously you, you can fit him anywhere in the show but um who knows if that was just if in 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 david lynch's mind or mark frost as they're creating this um the character of leland palmer just has served his purpose and now we're we're kind of exploring sarah in a way that we hadn't i don't know if it's got something if, I don't, who knows? But I do agree that I would have loved to have seen more of Ray Wise and and just the character of Leland, and because uh, there is something there too. Like there's so many, there's so much to ask about Leland Palmer as well, and his relationship to Bob and Fire and like all of that. You know how he first became uh, infected with them. But yeah, curious. One thing that we forgot to mention as we were talking about the Red Room stuff is that. What we see immediately afterwards is Cooper falling through space, possibly. I'd say, um, yeah, or emptiness or nothingness or some it looks vacuum. Like, it looks like outer space. I th- <laughs> yeah, who, I, but it's that sort of like weird uh, whistling wind sound and then the shot of his face up close, wide-eyed. Um, I I interpreted it as like it's just him falling through uh space for sure uh but this is sort of like I don't know anti-space or like negative non-existence space. non-existence yeah just this uh he's he's the the vacuum of nothingness the void whatever you want to call it Mhm So then we see him floating in the glass box and Sam and Tracy are coincidentally not in the room this is a flashback to the scene where Sam goes out and meets Tracy and the security guard isn't around. Mm-hmm. And so they don't see Cooper. And there's this really odd effect where it's like a shuddering effect where he mm-hmm. sort of shrinks and gets bigger and smaller. And it's just kind of a neat, neat visual effect that I don't really read into, but I just no. think it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. I think once you hear Lynch start talking about where he gets his ideas, you see something like that, and you're like, he probably just thought that would look interesting, which it does. Yeah, it's it's just it's just more visually dynamic than Cooper just floating in the box and then yeah. floating out. And the the so, joining sounds are really neat too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we mentioned Sarah Palmer, and we get one of many, I think, very sad scenes with Sarah in the show, and. I just want to say right off top here that Grace Zabriskie, secret MVP of this show, in my opinion, like dating back to the original series, she is just fucking great, in my no, opinion. The range, too, from uh, like from, from from the pilot and then from when she's completely, absolutely distraught, 
um, into just just her her mannerisms. Like one of my favorite scenes from the original run is uh, when you know Leland is dancing with Laura's picture and and cuts his hand and starts. She just screams, "What is happening in this house?" <laughs> it's just like so motherly and perfect. Um, no, she's she's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I just I absolutely adore Grace Zabriskie. And this is one of many scenes we get of Sarah Palmer just sort of drinking and lounging and watching weird stuff on the TV. I think the way that Zabriskie wears the weight of just all the years of, of grief and sadness and shame is really incredible. I, I think that the just her watching lions feed on uh zebras or whatever it was it it has this really um you know animalistic kind of primal like sadness to it almost like this is just raw negativity um vices guilt uh violence like it's just as a uh, as an image and as an idea just taking it in it's it's just exceptionally negative which is i think I, I, at least that's how I see it. Um, like I don't know, like because she, when she's not watching lions eat each other, she's watching what a loop of of people boxing, someone getting right. knocked out, um, or violence. It's just violence. She's she's taking in, uh, she's like a feedback loop of negativity, uh, just taking it in and exerting it. I don't know how else to read into those scenes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just supposed to be sort of a, a glimpse into her really desperate and sad mind state. I think. Mm-hmm. All right, so this episode closes out at the Roadhouse. We come back to the Roadhouse for the first time where the Chromatics are playing. And um, I got to say, I love this song, Shadow. This is oh, probably this is probably out of all the songs that are played at the Roadhouse. This is probably my favorite one. I love this. I love this one. I, I mean, I, I like a bunch of them. We'll talk about them as they come up. But I actually have a uh, a pretty cool little thing on my wall right now that I'm looking at. And it's a... It's probably like a, I don't know, a three foot by like an 18 inch little poster of it's like the chromatics records, uh, like their vinyl records. They're like a, like a, a, like a bunch of them and they're all cracked. And then there's like a saxophone and an acoustic and a, like a semi hollow guitar. And then a picture of Laura Palmer in the center of it. And the, the glass is all cracked. Uh, wow. and I, apparently my roommate knows someone out in LA and they knew someone who was like on the set and this was like a promotional thing for like, I guess when you said they were doing like all the roadhouse scenes in one day, they must've had like a bunch of posters and stuff up like from all the bands um, who like did merch for it. And this was one of them. So I just got it hanging up on my wall. I'll take a picture of it. Maybe we can throw it up on Twitter, but wow. Yeah, we should definitely do that. I'm, I'm jealous. That sounds amazing. It's super cool. It's um, it, it, it ties my whole room together. It's excellent. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's worth noting also that this song, Shadow, thematically ties into the show, I think, a little bit more than the other songs here. When you look into the lyrics, like, Shadow, Take Me Down, this idea of, like, the shadow self and the doppelganger and all that. It's kind of neat. There's a few instances of that, I think, um, where it fits in really well. And then there's obviously some where it doesn't. But but this one in particular, for the first Roadhouse scene, I think it's, it's really fitting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Roadhouse is where we get reintroduced to a bunch of Twin Peaks characters. 
we see James Hurley, our old friend James, oh, walking boy. in, brand new hairdo, apparently has been in a motorcycle accident, and that's why he's quiet, according to Shelley. Mm-hmm. Don't know what to make of that. Um, aside from just uh, another explanation for James being super weird. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why he doesn't have a motorcycle this season. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the explanation for that not being a motorcycle in the budget. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he walks in with Freddy, who we see wearing the green glove and a bit of foreshadowing. And uh, I'm sure that you, like me, as soon as you saw this, figured, oh, well, that that's, that's the guy that's going to kill Bob. Yeah, no, immediately he's like, well, obviously this is part of the fireman's master plan to have that dude who I literally forgot about <laughs> be the one who takes down the ultimate force of, of evil and humanity. But yeah, I, I was surprised that they, I was surprised that they telegraphed that so strongly, frankly, it was a bit um, uh, on the nose. Yeah. So we catch up with Shelly a little bit. We find out that she doesn't really like her daughter's boyfriend, Steven, or I'm sorry, her daughter's husband, Steven. Mm hmm. And somebody says, well, everybody loves Steven, which is a little bit hard to believe considering what we see from Steven in this season. Yes, he's a creepy little skinny weirdo. Yeah, uh, who really enjoys abusing his wife and uh, presumably killing her, in fact, ultimately. Um, you know, presumably there was a time before he was a scumbag junkie, but... uh the idea that everybody loves Steven in current day Twin Peaks seems a little far-fetched. But. Yeah, it's 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 odd, too, especially with what we're shown of him in, in not-so-private of spaces, either. Um, so, yeah, so this is also our first glimpse of Renee, who's a minor character. Um, we know that James has a crush on her and confronts her very creepily towards the end of the season, uh, which starts a massive brawl. And um, one thing that I just sort of wanted to mention here is the idea that possibly Renee might originally have been written as Donna, which is hmm. uh, which is an idea. Th- yeah, which is an idea that I kind of sort of believe, given what we see from Renee in this season. You know, we know that obviously James and Donna were dating in the original run, uh, which would explain why maybe he has this sort of long-running crush on her mm-hmm. and it also explains why renee's husband might get so pissed off when james approaches her later in the season because if he knows that james is like her ex then he's probably thinking like well what the fuck why is why is my wife's ex right hanging around also and they didn't want and, to cast a third actress <laughs> sure yeah i mean i don't know we we, we could speculate as to why maybe laura flamboyle isn't in this season, you know, maybe more Moira Kelly turned it down, and they just didn't want to cast a third actress, like you mentioned. But you know, it would also fit with the scene in the Roadhouse, I believe, in part thirteen, where we see James performing "Just You," and we cut to Renee in the booth, who is like sobbing. Yeah, to it. That and it's a good explanation as any. Yeah, and if we assume that, well, maybe that character was originally supposed to be Donna, then that would make sense, since, you know, obviously Donna was one of the original singers of that song. So, I don't know, just um, just a bit of speculation. It's I kind of, I, I halfway buy it. 
it's like I said, it's a, as good an explanation as any that we're going to get. Um, and I think with this show, headcanon is pretty important. Like what you choose to, uh, like with the thing, cause there's so much that we can't know that we have to read into. So like, however you choose to enjoy the show, uh, that's cool with me or like that's, that's part of this whole process of, of even enjoying the show in the first place. Yeah. Why not think of Renee as Donna? No, mm-hmm. it's like she's such a small character. Who cares? Um, another 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 thing here is uh, we get our first look at Balthazar Getty as Red, another very strange minor character uh, that we will get a couple scenes with later on. And yeah, he's interesting. He just points and yeah. points and makes a finger gun, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. A, yeah, he does the finger gun move at Shelley, which I mean, no lady can resist that move. I think we all know that. Yeah, Shelley has a type. Yeah, she really and does. And it's the finger gun type. Yeah, it's the kind of guy who would do finger guns at yeah. a woman in a bar. That is that is <laughs> Shelley's type, exactly. And we would be remiss if we concluded this episode without talking about Shelley's immortal line, James is cool. James has always been cool. You know... Of all the times where I felt like someone was speaking directly to me from the TV, <laughs> it was almost like I was being reprimanded for my years of making fun of James uh, on the internet and in real life. Uh, it's just uh, almost like, don't you talk about my character like that. <laughs> He's cool. Oh, he had a boy. motorcycle and a leather jacket. I did everything I could to make him cool. He had a bunch of girlfriends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. James fucks, you guys. He does. How how dare you make fun of James? Yeah, this is just, it's hilarious. I I, I don't know. It's just the way that the camera just closes up on Shelly too as she says it just is so confrontational. Like, guys, James is cool. He's always been cool. You got that? You ingrates? It was was a very... uh... Yeah, it was very like paternal. Like he was, uh, like there was just this very like this tone of uh, authoritative, uh, like speaking to it. She's like, James has always been cool. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, all right. Yeah, it's like Lynch and Frost saying, "Hey, back off, my son." Yeah, we did this, all right. We made him that way. And and to to be fair, James in season one is fine. He doesn't bother me at all. Um, it's really not. And he's a little goofy, but it's mostly. Um, the later later stages of his it's just his story arc becomes unbearable uh, and you and he's hateable he has a hateable face it's, so what are you gonna do oh my god James in season two is just the biggest waste of time of all time I know we're not treading any new ground here I know that everybody already knows that the whole James and Evelyn subplot is the worst thing in the world but like having having just rewatched those episodes recently for the first time in many years, it's actually worse than I remember. It's just so awful. Yeah, because I skipped them. Um, I, I literally I watched like up to like I mean I rewatched for this was like I've I've seen the original run a bunch of times, but I rewatched it basically up until season two, episode seven, and then pretty much went finale into the return because I I knew nothing we were going to talk about was going to have any bearing. Uh, or anything from season two would have any bearing on what we were going to talk about. No. And uh, now that we've concluded with uh, the most important bit in this episode, I think we can call it a day on episode two. The stars turn and a time presents itself. Yeah, like you said, very eventful episode. I uh, think maybe even only uh, 
topped by or well, topped by a, a bunch of them, but uh, the next one coming up, part three, I think really ties in very well. We're gonna have a lot. We're gonna go back to this one a lot, and a lot of very interesting. Some of my favorite stuff in, in the return happens, um, so I can't wait to get to it. Part three is so good. I am so excited to talk about part three. Now we should also um, mention you can follow us on Twitter at one one nine podcast. That. We should mention that. Thank you very much, Dylan. That is yeah. the URL, right? One one nine podcast. It is one one nine podcast. Our newly minted Twitter account. You could follow me, Nick, at Strenuous Orb, and you can follow Dylan at what is it? Piff Dylan. Piff Dylan. P i f f d y l a n. Right, and um, you know, if you're listening to this and you have something to say, any kind of feedback whatsoever, you can actually also email us. We do have an email account that is one one nine podcast at gmail dot com. So yeah, we would we would love to to hear from you guys. So yeah, I think uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we look forward to recording part three. Catch you next time. Later.